This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated, but with plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and produced by David Slavik. At this point, I should give a shout out to Andrew Bernstein, friend of the pod and practice group leader at Tories Litigation here in Toronto, for designing part of the pod's intro. So I've called this episode Sexceptionalism Cells, because in law, policy, and cultural discussions, we tend to think that the addition of a sexual component to a series of facts makes our moral and legal assessment of those facts very different. In this episode, I ramble and muse with David, my husband, and fellow law school graduate about how to think about sexual assault activism on university campuses. I then talk to law school professor Kim Ferzan about the relationship between consent and coercion in sexual scenarios. This is a hot one. We hope you enjoy. So in this segment, David and I wanted to take a moment to talk to each other about a controversy that's sort of roiling uh, over at Harvard University. Um, and so not only is this episode about sex exceptionalism, but maybe in some ways, um, Harvard exceptionalism. Um, but I want to head off a critique of that at the beginning. So Firstly, the issue is that Ronald Sullivan, who is a professor at Harvard Law School, um, but who also serves as a faculty dean at the undergraduate Winthrop House, come under fire by several student groups over the past couple of weeks because he's chosen to represent Harvey Weinstein in his criminal matter in New York. And so the basic idea there is that there's some sort of inherent conflict between Sullivan's role as an attorney uh, representing Weinstein, and then also his role as um, a pastoral carer and sort of mentor and advisor for undergraduate students. And so just uh, so that everyone knows, Harvard University, the undergraduate portion of it, Harvard College, functions along the lines of organized rather around several undergraduate houses. Those houses have faculty deans. Those deans are responsible for the house staff, tutorial and common room appointments. And according to Harvard itself, they, quote, set the tone for the house in its activities and in its function as a close-knit community within the context of a larger college and university. So the houses are very much into, you know, standard undergraduate spirit type issues. But they also are the first place where students would go if they have a problem. So if a student is, uh, for example, wanting to complain about um or to sexual harassment or assault, they might uh, they might be likely to address, attend to some of the um, staff members of their undergraduate house. So this at, at one at one <laughs> level might seem a very Harvard problem because you have a um, a very accomplished uh, attorney representing Weinstein for obviously. I mean, one can assume quite quite a hefty fee. And then on the other hand, there are undergraduates who are, you know, ranging between 18 and 22 years of age, roughly, who are demanding, on the one hand, greater agency with respect to 
to who's in charge of their house in the sense that they've asked for Sullivan to resign, not his position as a law professor or anything like that, um, but to resign from his position as faculty dean of the house. So on the one hand, they're asking for power, but on the other hand, uh, they're really asking to be treated sort of like children. <laughs> so, so there's an interesting question you know, about the degree to which Harvard undergraduate community actually is representative of other other colleges and campuses. But I think that this instance is is telling because oftentimes what happens at Harvard will trickle down to other schools. And what happens in the context of really high profile on-campus activism cases will trickle down to uh, college and university sort of culture around Me Too and Me Too activism. So that's kind of where we come to this at. One thing that really has struck me about reading about this is that knowing that Harvard essentially runs the Harry Potter system of houses, it's <laughs> it's almost as if Professor McGonagall, for you Harry Potter fans, and I know that, that Heidi is not a Harry Potter fan, was uh, representing uh, one of the dementors or, or one of the people from uh, sort of the bad guys in, in Harry Potter as far as they were concerned, and whether that would set a tone. That was against it. So it's almost as if, as if uh, you know, somebody who was, who was being accused in that frame. Harvard is always fascinating to me as a non-Harvard alum. So as the non-Harvard alum here, I am going to interject on behalf of the commoners. <laughs> I, find, I find this very interesting because it, it really is a small matter that has a large scope. Um, essentially, there is a um, about 250 students who have signed on to this petition or people nationwide have signed up the petition uh, at change.org. That's really small in scale compared to a lot of other things, but it is important and we do not want to diminish the, the concerns of these students. So. Oh no, it's going up. 261, 264 have signed. Wow. <laughs> and the petition, just so you know, is called Students for the Removal of Winthrop Dean Sullivan at change.org. So there is some traction about it. Actually, as we watch it, it is going up a few. So, so maybe, maybe this is catching a little more spirit than we thought. Um, but one of the things that we really wanted to address while we were talking about this is the the understanding that professors have a role outside in the community. And Harvard in particular has a has an important role in shaping society. Just like this role uh, in the campus community affects how campuses are run, uh, whether or not professors can operate with sort of independence outside of the campus system is also really important. And that's what we wanted to address today. Yeah, I mean, one could be really simplistic about this. And so the other thing I wanted to do is to make sure that our brief sort of podcast analysis is not simplistic. And it, I see the simplicity um, in the Reason article from a couple of days ago that really you know, cast uh, this issue as like another example, right, of social justice warriors on campus having gone too far and and being crazy and not adequately recognizing that, uh, you know, Ron Sullivan himself's long history of acting for um, underprivileged and underrepresented communities, um, including his representation of Michael Brown's family uh, in their suit against Ferguson, uh, you know. And, but I don't think that's a very good analysis. So it's sort of, it's, it's too, 
patronizing in a way. And I think we struggle with this because we want it. We found this. We want it to. We we like our segments to be kind of lighthearted and funny. And I like. I really appreciate the um, introduction of Harry Potter here. I I, I want to take these students' concerns seriously. In other words, I want to move away from the notion that um, that we need to to treat them as sort of wards of the university from the perspective of of being taken care of. And so, and the other the other strand that came out in criticism was yesterday there was an article by Connor Friedersdorf um, in the Atlantic called "In Defense of Harvey Weinstein's Lawyer," and that it was a, it's a good piece. I recommend people read it because it has some really pithy. Uh, quotes from Harvard Law School and other professors, but again, takes a little bit of a disparaging tone. It refers to, you know, adults who know better as being in opposition to students on campus. And I think that any really good faith analysis wants to, you know, should move away from positioning ourselves as the, you know, the, the professors or the intelligentsia or even just the adults who know better versus um, this silly easily wound up, easily influenced sort of childlike undergraduate figure. I think that both of those are caricatures that need to be addressed in this conversation. I think that after years of teaching undergrad, I've discovered that undergrad students really do have a lot to say and are often more informed about issues than, than even faculty are at times. Because of that, I actually think that one of the things that we need to do is to recognize that the undergrads do have agency and they also have the ability to work through environments that are more difficult. And I think that's where I think sort of our intervention comes from. And, and then also our intervention comes into the idea of academic freedom. It's unlike many of the people on the right who are using this as a, this opportunity to uh, cudgel sort of student activism and to attack students who care about social issues. Well, we would like to just say, at least on my, I'm going to speak on my behalf and uh, not on Heidi's. I, I would never uh, deem to do that. We think that students can live in an environment where there are challenges and still thrive intellectually. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's, I really just have to strongly, you know, despite everything that we've just said, strongly, substantively disagree with the position that these undergraduate students have taken. In other words, I don't think it's right that Sullivan should resign his role as faculty dean. And I don't think that that's right uh, because actually, and no one, I don't think anyone else has said this thus far, is that his role as dean, a live-in, by the way, with his family, dean at Winthrop House, actually positions him uniquely to be able to speak um, about matters of uh, sexual regulation and the criminal law with his undergraduate students in a sort of, you know, in a way that few others um, could provide. And representing Weinstein in and of itself should not be uncritically understood as presenting some kind of threat or to students, namely by um, the language of trauma was used in in one of the letters by students that it was trauma inducing that uh, Sullivan would be representing Weinstein. And that needs to be resisted at the same time that we take really seriously student concerns. And so the idea would be, um, from my perspective anyway, you know, get together, have the students talk frankly with the professor about the concerns and about how those concerns can be managed and not just the concerns, but the substantive allegations, you know? And so one, it may not be a perfect analogy and I do in general really hate to bring up, uh, you know, the Nazi example, but I do have to say that uh, we gave 
we, the Allied powers, right, gave the Nazis at Nuremberg Defense Council, and they did so for important reasons. And those Defense Council, some of them may well have been uh, substantively aligned with the positions of the of the Nazi defendants, and other others certainly weren't. But they understood themselves as advocating for a set of principles, namely fairness, that the system represented. And it wasn't just that they were standing there to occupy the position of fairness, right, or to show the world that the the trial was fair in some way. It was that being a voice for the opposing party, even when that opposing party is as heinous as we could possibly imagine, right? So again, the exceptionalism exceptionalism of the Nazis there. It doesn't mean that they they should be shut down without um, without giving them space for their sort of side of the story to be heard, and that's actually what criminal trials often do. Uh, and and the idea that conversation should be shut down rather than something that is really specifically managed and sort of encouraged at the university, I think is really just really dangerous. And that if anything, these students should be just kind of happy <laughs> that they have a figure like Ron Sullivan, who's living in their midst and, and would be able to engage these questions in, I'm absolutely certain, an adroit and respectful and professional manner. I think someone who's been on sort of all sides of social justice in, the, in a positive way, like Ron Sullivan, would be a great example to students. But I also think that what's interesting about this case is that it's the first time I've ever been in a conversation where the Nazi analogy wasn't a losing argument. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, that was a really enjoyable conversation. Um, we just want to say that we respect the students' concerns and that we really wanted to have a funnier segment about this, but this is, a, is an issue that's serious on both sides. Kim Ferzan is Harrison Robertson Professor of Law and Joel P. Piazic Research Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Her work focuses on criminal law theory. She is the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Law and Philosophy and is on the editorial boards of Legal Theory and Criminal Law and Philosophy. I grabbed her while she was passing through the University of Toronto to speak about stand-your-ground laws in the United States. In our interview today, she talks about her forthcoming article in the Arizona State Law Journal, entitled Consent and Coercion. Great. So it's my pleasure to have Kim Verzan with us this afternoon to talk about uh, her forthcoming article, Consent and Coercion. So thanks so much for being here, Kim. It's great to meet you in person. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So um, as listeners will know, this, uh, this paper really overlaps quite closely with my own work at the moment. And so I'm just so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, there's a number of things I want to talk about, but before we get into that, maybe you could just take a moment to outline the thesis as generally as possible for the listeners. Sure. So the idea is that sometimes we fight over whether or not uh, consent is coerced. And I think that sometimes what we're fighting about is is actually a concept, we're conceptually confused between two different 
ways of thinking about coercion. Sometimes what coercion does is it sort of undermines our responsibility for a choice. So if somebody holds a gun to your head and tells you to rob a bank, the reason why you'd have a duress excuse is because your sort of the, your voluntariness seems to be undermined by the pressures that are involved. But sometimes when we're talking about coercion, we're really talking about the other side, the coercer, and the fact that the coercer has imposed some sort of threat uh, that is wrongful. And these two things can, in fact, come apart. And I think that sometimes when we have fights over whether or not sex, for example, is coerced, we are using coercion in two different ways. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so you unpack this uh, piece and those two ideas specifically with respect to the Aziz Ansari case, which, of course, has filled up uh, the news and also the heads of criminal law theorists over the last several months. And so why did you choose the Aziz Ansari case uh, in order to roll out your your argument, so I, I don't. So that's a great question. I'm not sure I know the chicken versus the <laughs> egg on that. I I had taught or actually co-taught a course on coercion uh, with my colleague Debbie Hellman, and we taught Mitch Berman's paper called The Normative Force of Coercion Claims, where he was the first one to introduce these potentially different ways of thinking about coercion. And so they were sort of just kind of hanging out in my head. Uh, and then there was that particular moment when the Ansari case came out, and it seemed as a, as a sort of perfect moment to discuss, you know, the kind of back burner topic uh, that you're sort of mm-hmm. waiting to develop mm-hmm. in, in uh, greater depth. Mm-hmm. And so I know that when it comes to sexual assault law in the United States, um, each state, of course, takes a different approach to how they think about consent. And I know as well that you've been working uh, with the ALI in their new, uh, well, it's been going on for some time now, consent project. Um, and if you could just maybe lay out what you find to be the hard, toughest sticking points with even just unpacking what we mean by consent before in the laws it currently stands before we get to this question, your question in the paper about how do we uh, think about the two kinds of consent you outlined or the two kinds of coercion you outlined more carefully. Sure. So I guess in talking about the ALI, I, I'd say that there are two things going on that are Mm -hmm. worth talking about. One is that you just have a lot of people who are bringing a lot of different perspectives to bear, uh, which is always the the more cooks you have, right? That's going to be a problem to begin with. Um, But part of what's going on is that um, you have two reporters who present draft statutes, and then you have sort of of advisors who are somewhat experts weighing in on those drafts. And those people range in perspectives uh, from judges who care about vagueness to advocates who care about uh, working with sexual assault victims uh, to pointy-headed law professors like myself. <laughs> and you you have feminists pushing in terms of the, the under-criminalization of sexual assault. And then you have uh, a range of sort of defense attorney uh, Types uh, who are extremely worried about overcriminalization mm-hmm. and the fact that whatever we do with these statutes will sort of disproportionately uh, fall on sort of people in lower socioeconomic classes, people of color, etc. Mm-hmm. And so everyone is in some ways coming from a good place, but very different good places. And so 
I think that's a struggle. And even Stephen Schulhofer, the the reporter, has written about what a struggle that is to, to kind of deal with people's different objections to that. So my role I see as as sort of the the person who says, let's get the concept right, sort of from a almost like moral criminal law theory perspective. And then let's figure out what kind of concessions or changes we want to make as we change that into law and mm-hmm. we wonder about implementing it. Mm-hmm. So the question, for example, of affirmative consent was met with extraordinary resistance by yeah. a number of people. Um, my objections to affirmative consent actually stem from a belief that consent is something you do by simply choosing to allow something. So that uh, if you go to pat my hand and I think that's okay with me in my head, you've no longer wronged me. And uh, so even if you think that's the best conception of consent, as it sort of really exists, Mm -hmm. you might still then say, how are we going to tweak this? What kinds of changes would we want to make? Because we're worried uh, about uh, potentially, I think, most largely shifting norms in one way or another. And so, but I tend to see my value added as let's start from the right premise before we decide to trade those things off to 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 get to a different kind of result. Right, right. That was a very long answer to the question. No, not, it was not at all. And it's extremely helpful. Not everybody um, for sure is going to be sort of up to date on the intricacies of the ALI's process. And even just hearing how many different stakeholders are at the table coming with conflicting interests and representing um, really quite disparate constituencies. And then this, you know, struggle to make sense of what criminal justice means in this realm, especially now post Me Too, and and just to say that this consent project has been going on for some time before Me Too started, but especially now in the sort of fraught political space that we find ourselves in, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think it's important to understand just how difficult these questions end up being. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit to help people who maybe don't fully understand what we mean when we say affirmative consent, sort of what the um, proposal, or, or there have been several, but sort of the, the short story about the affirmative consent story at the ALA is just because I think it's an important part of then how you are are thinking about coercion in your in your paper, which comes as a later part in the story. Sure. Although, so to clarify, the sure. ALI, the one thing they have sort of voted on in terms of the substantive sexual assault provisions is that the definition of consent is subjective willingness. Mm-hmm. So the view that I think is the right one, theoretically, is in fact the one that got adopted by the ALI. Yes. So I think the original idea or the question with affirmative consent yeah. is that you are both sort of thinking something and then expressing it to other people. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the question of when you say yes, uh, whether or not uh, you have to mean it or you simply have to say it. But it is some sort of words or conduct that, in fact, is expressing hopefully some internal state that you have of willingness to allow. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the motivation for that is concerns with things like people say no when they mean yes. So if you have a subjective view like I have where you think it's all in someone's head, there's this sort of potential that the defendant says, well, I know the person said no, but I honestly believed that the victim meant yes by that. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to get around that kind of objection, you say, look, we're not going to let you decide 
what no and yes mean. We are just as, you know, the referee gets to say when you're out, mm-hmm. uh, when when someone says no, that actually has the effect in law being no and only or potentially yes has is the only thing that has the effect of being yes. Right. And I think that people worried, I think one of the main objections to this winds up being the sort of push that the defendant then has to get on the stand that they're almost disproving the state's case because they have to say, this is why, in fact, I believed I had a yes. And so then there was a push towards something that's more called uh, what the reporters were calling contextual consent. And I actually think most people who aren't sort of subjectivists mm-hmm. like I am, have a have mm-hmm. that kind of view, which is that it's a combination of what the person says read in through all the circumstances when in fact there is a yes versus right. is not. I think that because it had started so far with the affirmative consent, I think there was some skepticism that this was ultimately going to be affirmative consent in disguise. Mm-hmm. And we wound up, there was a motion for um, subjective willingness that ultimately was the, the test right. that passed. Right. And so I'm sure you know this as well, but just so listeners are aware, so subjective, um, subjective consent is a test in Canada as well. But then there is this defense of uh, mistaken but honestly held belief in, in consent. Uh, in, in Canadian in Canadian law, turn to your uh, piece in particular and the way in which um, the Aziz Ansari case might help us to think about uh, consent and coercion, um, and in particular uh, the way in which you've encouraged us to think about two different kinds of coercion. Right. So there, you say um, throughout the piece, and I thought it was really helpful that um, commentators, feminists, and otherwise are probably talking past each other when it comes to what's really at stake um, in the uh, uh, Ansari case. In other words, what's really objectionable or wrong, either from a moral or, or a criminal law perspective. And could you maybe just lay out what the talking past each other point really gets to? Sure. So let me start just by saying that whatever conception you have of consent, whether you're an affirmative consent mm-hmm. person or a all it has to be is a yes in your head, we all agree that if there's a gun held to, to, to your head, even if you say yes, that's not going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. Right. So the question is, however you've gotten that yes, what would in fact undermine its uh, moral or legal efficacy? Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, in the Aziza Ansari case, right, the the concern was that Grace either could have left or that what she was responding to was, in fact, needling, whining, cajoling, and posing uh, a series of sort of wrongful pressures. Mm -hmm. And so one side is saying, well, those wrongful pressures don't look like the kinds of things that really should undermine a choice, Mm -hmm. right? Certainly in duress cases, you'd never have a defense in criminal law because your boyfriend whined until you robbed the bank. And I think that they're sort of looking at this, are your choices so unfairly limited? And that side is saying no, right? That's the Barry Weiss view of you could have just left, there's, you know, and there's not much more to this. And I think that the the other side is saying there's just something sort of incredibly wrong about not taking no for an answer repeatedly and imposing psychological pressure repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And I think that you can impose that pressure in a way that is wrongful and that even if the choice isn't undermined, mm-hmm. right, you still shouldn't avail yourself of that choice, Right. right? 
when the person responds to something that you were wrong to impose, that in fact is, is a form of wrongful coercion. And so you don't have to, you can grant potentially what Barry Weiss says and still think that we have mm-hmm. morally criticizable coercion here. Absolutely. And I, I actually end the paper with something I had seen when I had been actually researching a different paper um, and was looking a little bit at coercion. It's amazing, of course. I mean, I'm sure everyone knows what you can find on the internet, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend the search terms I have to look for to, to do some of this research. But the the there was this woman uh, on like a chat room board talking about how her husband whined like a puppy dog until she performed oral sex on him mm-hmm. and then saying, is this coercion? And so there's obviously a sense in which it's coercive. And then uh, everyone chimes in with, this is coercion, this is coerced sex. And the next thing we get to is that this starts looking like sexual assault. Yeah. And I think that that's too slippery a move uh, because sometimes the sort of things that look wrongfully coercive just don't undermine choice in that same kind of way. Yeah, that is just such a helpful reiteration of the paper. So thanks so much for that. Yeah, and I so if we could just talk about the way then I've always been in my own work, you know, deeply influenced by the the school of thought that starts with Robert Hale and his very famous essay, Coercion and Distribution, right? And part of what as you know, Hale does in this piece is to point out that what looks like individual liberties guaranteed by law, and he uses the property right as the paradigmatic example, is actually um, on the flip side, a series of choices that the state makes about whether or not to enforce uh, rights that are are available um, on the other side. And so I'll just read this because it's so helpful. He says, what is the government doing when it protects a property right? Passively, it's abstaining from interference with the owner when he deals with a thing owned, but actively, it's forcing the non-owner to desist from handling it unless the owner consents. And so it's that, it's that, that flip that sort of helps us to understand if we take a little bit of a more concrete materialist perspective to the way that law operates, that actually everything we do from the moment we get up, and I've, I've said this many times, but I did, to the moment we go to sleep is like coerced in some sense and that that coercion is in some sense backed up by law. I'm totally on board with everything you just said. I think it's great. And I'm wondering if you can help me sort of think through why the sorts of coercion that we see either in the Ansari case or other examples of uh, revelations in, in the Me Too era, why do we think about sexual coercion as distinct from the coercion that's involved, you know, in the structuring of a property right, for example? And is there sort of a, a legitimate basis for doing that? In other words, I'm wondering whether the the two sides that you've just pointed out, the Barry Weiss side, that's very much in some sense libertarian and f- overly invested in individual agency, right? Mm-hmm. In a way that Hale himself would object to. And then the other side say, that's just slides so easily towards uh, sexual assault, uh, because everything's coercion, sort of not in a normatively good way, if you know what I mean. So we can accept that everything's coercion, but that means that somehow everything is assault. And so I know that that's a long-winded way of getting at this question of like sort of the structural coercion within which we operate all the time, and then the sort of the how we should start thinking about sexual coercion in that space. So I start with um, the premise that if we're going to have these questions of consent and any of that is going to be relevant, it can't be the kind of coercion where sort of 
no one's ever consenting to anything, right? right? Because of the the sort of, and, and I take it that's more the sort of McKinnon-Dworkin yes. kind of objection yeah. of we can't possibly have consensual sex. Right. So we're going to have some view that, in fact, some things, some choices are sufficiently unconstrained, right? And then within that, right, I take it that at least the Barry Weiss side of this is people trying to work out what are the kind of constraints that we think are so constraining, right, that in fact the choice shouldn't be seen as reflecting on someone's autonomy. And I'm not sure I'm fully answering your question because I take it that the next step in this, uh, and I've learned this from even our conversations earlier today, is right, <laughs> the role of the state is just a distinct right. question. Right. And so how we should think about when or why the state is going to interfere and on what grounds is a is a separate overlay to the question of, you know, did Aziz Ansari engage in coercion and did he engage in sort of wrongful sex as a result of that? Uh, and I do think that we are too quick to think that the criminal law is the answer to all of these things, right? So right. in the paper, I mean, I think that we all think that guns to head equal sexual assault. Uh, and in the paper, I, I sort of talk about this concept of sex by threat, but I'm actually yeah. quite skeptical, I think, of thinking that that actually should be something that the criminal law uh, criminalizes. But I think we should sort of put on the table, what would that even look like? And then what would those kinds of arguments be? But yes, necessarily the state is coming in to either decide to sort of uh, impose or not impose some some structure and some yeah. values to that. So that's a great segue then. I want to ask you about the sex by threat proposal you give us, which which you write, Lizzie, you're very skeptical of in the paper, and I, I'm skeptical of too, but yet now we have it. And I think it it really, um, it's, it's it was a really useful addition to my own thinking. Because it is, it constitutes an intervention in this space where right now in the public discourse, and even in the intellectual discourse on this topic, we have this idea that, yes, there's a criminal law, and we'll use that in really bad cases, but then there's something we want to do culturally, and we're not sure about whether it, the role that we want sexual assault law to play in this kind of cultural transformation. And I think one way of looking at this sex by threat law is maybe as an example of something that could, given the political forces at work today, many people might be in favor with, but which might actually be quite dangerous. <laughs> and, I, and I think that we share may, some of those some of those concerns. And so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you conceive of sex by threat, and then maybe why turning to the criminal law to deal with these social cultural relationship coercion questions might be a, a, a not such a great avenue of redress. Yeah, okay, so just to, to back up to the theory sure. before getting to the statute, right? So the idea is something like when you impose coercion that is wrongful but doesn't rise to the level of undermining uh, the consenter's choice, uh, then in fact the consent you get, your hands are sort of unclean, you shouldn't profit from your own wrong in a sense where it would be wrong for you then to avail yourself of that consent. Right? And I give a couple different sorts of examples, you know, one of them, and this seems trivial in, in comparison to sexual assault, but I think it's helpful, right? Parents know that their children constantly, constantly, constantly whine. Uh, and if my child constantly whines to get ice cream, at some point in time, I'm, I gave him the ice cream. I have to stand up and take responsibility for that. And yet you might think that what my child is supposed to do is say, I'm really sorry I whined. I won't eat this now. Yeah. Right? And that there's something problematic of availing yourself of the ice cream. And that's obviously, I give a whole 
bunch of different examples like that. The st- I th- and I guess more seriously, I think that when the state potentially coerces confessions, it might be the same sort of thing, that the behavior of the state is wrongful, even if it's not wrongful to the level of undermining mm-hmm. the, per- the, the confessor's choices. So if you think that's wrongful, then you get to the question, well, when should the criminal law be involved in wrongdoing. There's all kinds of things where the criminal law cares, including, you know, shoplifting a Reese's peanut butter cup. And there are things the criminal law does not engage in, like breaking promises, which may be, in fact, much more wrongful. So the idea was, well, if we were going to think that this should be a crime, what would it look like, right? And so it would be the kind of thing where you engage in this coercion and then you avail yourself of it. Can I, I'm just sorry to interject, but I, so when we talk about, just to be really clear for people and also for my own understanding, when we talk about availing themselves of the wrong action, so so just to be clear to people listening, so that would not be availing oneself of a consent defense because we're not in a realm where there isn't consent and there's sexual assault. Availing oneself of, of the sort of proceeds of one's yeah. wrongful, coerc- coercive engagement with another human being in this instance would be what? Something like loosely contributing to rape culture or contributing oh. to unhelpful social norms or what does... Like, I'm wondering, like, in terms of the sexual instance, what that availing... Oh, I actually mean the sex. So I think that that if you engage in a bunch of sort of wrongful behaviors that don't rise to the level of this other category of coercion C that are that Mitch Berman calls coercion W, coercion wrongfulness, that in fact, having having received the consent to engage in whatever behavior or to get whatever thing, you should no longer actually avail yourself of that consented to act. So my kid doesn't get to eat the ice cream if, in fact, he's wine to get it. it But if one does, it's not sexual assault. It's not sexual assault. And I think we'd want to reserve sexual assault for the categories where we're really talking about something being non-consensual. Here we're saying there's consent, but yet we're still uncomfortable with it because the way the consent was procured was itself wrong. Right. So it's not some sort of amorphous social norm contribution. I take it sort of... Although it would do that as well, right? So presumably accepting the sex or in in that scenario would contribute to some sort of wrongful or harmful ways about thinking about sex, maybe. Yeah, it could, right. it could potentially, it de- right, sure. Okay. So, so the idea here then becomes that that would be the kind of question we'd ask, which is, so why I call it sex by threat is that right. actually the conduct is sex that you've gotten by threatening, but it's not the sort of threat that undermines consent. Right. So now that that's what you've done, the question is, does that make a good criminal law? Right. And I think there are reasons for us to be worried about interjecting when there is consent, even though, look, this is somebody who's engaged in wrongful behavior and availed themselves of the proceeds Mm -hmm. of that. And that's that's at least, you know, prima facie, something the criminal law could ask, do Mm -hmm. we want to get involved Mm -hmm. with? I think the concern is that it winds up seeming strange that people who consent to the act, right, or who want to sort of potentially remove or forgive that taint almost can't. Right. So that if my child whines and I give him ice cream, and I apologize, maybe I shouldn't analogize with the ice I find it easier than going through the if Aziz Ansari's whines and he, he gets yeah. the sex. But you could imagine a different case where Grace thinks like, oh, you know, I really actually, you know, like it when yeah. men whine. So even though he's done something wrongful that procures the consent, we're troubled by the idea that she can't somehow make that okay. 
And so I think we'd be inserting the criminal law in situations where in some sense this is harmless wrongdoing because it is consensual. Right, right, right. Um, so I want to maybe just press a little bit further on this notion of um, individuals who maybe might want or enjoy or desire things that sort of fall outside of what we might understand as some reasonable baseline, I think is the word that you refer to baseline expectations of, we have a rephrase this for me. I'm doing. Now. Oh, so I think this. the idea is coercion. When is something a threat and the threat has to be something that drops someone below a base situations where individuals may want and desire sex that let's say the community standard, if we had to figure out what that was or the reasonable man or woman in this or a person in the situation might, they might not align. In other words, this sort of argument has been made uh, at some point in Canada with regard to obscenity laws, uh, lesbian and gay uh, communities interjected in one case saying, look, whatever the community standard is with regard to obscenity, that can't possibly apply to us. We're a separate community. We engage in sexual practices differently. We have different sets of values when it comes to our desires. And that's actually very important when it comes to expressing our autonomy and identity and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just as an as an analog. So I think that's a really important in that sense. What would look obscene to Joe on the street wouldn't be obscene for another another group of people. And so we have this a real problem in sort of substantively figuring out what is the, the potentially wrongful act. Right. So I'm wondering whether in the case that you just gave, like if, say, Grace actually like really likes it being, you know, begged and whatever, uh, you know, for the blowjob that she eventually kind of gives that's it is victimless and it might it might also be that it's not harmful behavior does that make sense yeah so i agree with that so right. i think that there's there's one question in the paper that's a little bit orthogonal to that but i can, let me just clarify sure. the difference so thing so one question that comes up with this kind of consent undermining notions of coercion is whether or not the sort of duress standard of a person of reasonable firmness should matter. So if you say to me, go rob a bank or I'm going to beat you with a wet noodle, if that's the thing that's really upsetting to me, should that count as undermining my choice? And so I think that part of the push in understanding these things is to say, we don't need that whole coercion, wrongfulness stuff that you're doing. We actually just need a much more subjective notion of what undermines people's choices. And I think that's the question I work through more in the paper. I take your question to be the, well, we have contested norms about coercion W and what's wrongful. I agree with that. I actually think that the debate on Aziz Ansari is problematic also because we're not having that debate, which is how do we behave on dates and what should we be allowed to do and how do we treat each other? So I'm that's a discussion that we should ha- be having instead of talking past each other on coercion. Right. All right. That's super helpful. Thank you so much. So I'll just ask you one more question, if that's all right. Sure. And and I um, so this is a bit of a funny one. I always like to ask kind of vaguely ridiculous questions at the ends of interviews. But so if we look at the sex by threat pretend statute that you've given us, which is just so fascinating. What do we say if a bunch of radical feminists like McKinnon or others say, oh, wow, that sounds great. Why don't we try and push for that? What's your response to those, uh, to that constituency? So what's my response? (laughs) 
I, I always think that there's actually, let's just start with a really interesting philosophical question about what our role is in the world, right? And so the people who say things like, you shouldn't actually have a theory on ticking time bombs and whether you can torture because you're actually going to have all these negative impacts in the world. And I think that there's probably, there's there's a grain of truth to that, but I also think that truth is really important and, and getting answers right is important. I think that you no criminal statute should just be the sort of briefly considered look at a law professor who put a statute in a in a law review article. Right. The idea was let's let's hold this up to the light and then ask if it would withstand scrutiny. And I think we've got to be able to do that. And the fact that people might then misinterpret what Mm -hmm. you're doing uh, we can't we can't control all of those things. So sure. I guess I'm going to continue to toil in my ivory tower, <laughs> hoping that if I get the the stars in the sky right, they yeah. will they will shine the right light on the you know shadowy practice of law, even if it turns out you know that you you would think that directly implementing some of those things could potentially right. be dangerous. That's great. Do you have any final words? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Kim Frizan, for being here.